Alright, ladies and gentlemen, just picture this. Picture this. You're just about to commit a genocide, right? And Quentin Tarantino, of all people, comes to visit you and your troops to quote unquote boost morale. I don't know, man. That sounds like a threat. That sounds like a psyop. In the words, Pokemon, he's Chuck D. Bring the noise. Podcast Network. I am Charlie Taylor, and this is what's good. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. Hope you've all had a good week in the circumstances. Yeah, I, li- I like the fact that I've put circumstances on on the back of the back end of that now. Um, just so uh, it just rings rings true when it's needed. You know what I mean? Um, but anyway, here we are. Yeah, I don't know. Just imagine being just. How does Quentin Tarantino boost morale? I wonder how that works, you know what I mean? It's not like he's, um, it's not like he's Buster Keaton, you know what I mean? I, 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 don't, I don't get it, I don't, I don't understand how <laughs> he could boost morale. Uh, what is he going to do, talk about films that are 50 years old that the Israeli army's probably never fucking heard of? Or, I don't know, is he going to just um, have a venomous soliloquy about Bruce Lee, I don't, I don't, I don't get it. I, I really don't understand that. It sounds, it sounds like a psyop. But then again, um, a lot of things um, America's doing when it in regards to Israel is um, pretty, pretty um, dick sucky. But um, we'll get to that when we get to that. Um, I am going to cover it this episode, as you can see by the title of the episode. Um, but that's on the back end. Um, we do have some, um, uh, some. Relatively um, interesting uh, stuff to talk about before that, uh, but yeah, let's just crack on. Well, I would say, do you do you think my voice is different? I think my voice sounds different. Wonder why? Um, I know why because um, I just can't connect to my software. I usually have a software for some reason. It's Logitech G Hub. I don't know why this that, um, but yeah, I usually have. Um, there's like a obviously I have my mic is a Blue Yeti. For those who don't know. And within that Logitech G Hub, which is usually for like, you know, streamers and, you know, I've got a Logitech webcam, so I use it for that as well. So you can change shit, keyboards, the mouse as well, my mouse, um, but I rarely do that and really need to change that up in any way. Um, but yeah, you know, also my microphone, weirdly enough, even though it's not Logitech, it's a Blue Yeti, but whatever. They had this um, thing called Blue Voice on there and... Um, I've been using that for the past probably year or so, and um, you know it's uh, it was good. It was good. I think my voice sounded professional. You know, um, I had this uh, broadcaster setting, and it sounded much more you know much more professional sounding. You know, uh, but now just regular me. Hi, <laughs> so let's jump right in. Fuck it, don't want to talk about that anyway. Before we begin, email, socials, writing, all that in the full show notes, as well as the music and podcast under the 5VPN, continuing our UK Black History Month over on Dingin' Digits, did Lisa Matthew this week, that was very good, very entertaining, especially listening to that 2000s ass music, um, and happy 4th anniversary to Insert Source, which is technically dead, <laughs> but hey man, birthdays are birthdays, eh? Alright, with that said, it'll be dropped. Let's get into the show. In a week where uh, Rudolph Isley, founded member of the Isley Brothers, dies aged 84, Microsoft completes its Activision Blizzard acquisition. billion, Australia rejects the proposal to recognise Aboriginal people in their constitution. New Zealand Labour lose general election to centre-right National Party. And lastly, Joe Biden visits Israel. Yay! Fun. But let's jump right into our first topic, which is short films. Um, I feel like short films are in this weird spot. Where, if you're a filmmaker of any kind, short films are your way in. More likely than not. You know, I know a lot of filmmakers and 
they always talk about short films, getting them to festivals, getting the name out, etc., etc., right? Um, short films are a very, very specific and in some, in a lot of ways, very necessary medium um, for filmmakers to to, to, to utilise and to actually do because um, it costs less to make a short film, believe it or not, than a feature film. So why would you try and do a feature film when you have no money? Do a short film. Um, and everyone does it. Everyone does a short film. That's what the majority of every... Um, majority of every... Sounds like a... Anyway. The majority of um, university um, courses, you know, they cater to short films. They make you do several short films or a music video here and there and whatever, you know what I mean? Just, but short shit, basically. Um, but I don't feel like anybody watches any short films ap- apart from, you know, people that are in film education and that's pretty much it. Um, I don't, I I never watch short films um, unless, you know, I'm a part of it or, um, you know, someone I know is part of it or... You know, educational purposes. That's pretty much it. Like, I don't, I don't watch it for fun. Don't watch it for recreation. So um, I found this Vox article talking about it um, by, excuse me, Alyssa Wilkinson uh, via Vox. It's called "Why Aren't We Watching More Short Films?" And this is off the back of Wes Anderson. Apparently, he has a series of Netflix shorts, which is fun for him. Um, but yeah, let's jump right The short film is a neglected form of American entertainment. Prevalent, you can find them most anywhere. Uh, and pretty much every filmmaker has a few, has made a few, and yet barely watched or talked about. That's strange when you think about it. We talk about movies, by which we mean features, and we talk about TV. Paramount recently uploaded all of Mean Girls to TikTok in 23 separate clips, and the platform subscription spiked. By the way, that is a, um, that is a reach, uh, uh, what's the, <laughs> honey said reach around, um, that is a workaround of, um, them actually paying residuals to, you know, the people that were part of making Mean Girls, so Tut Tut Paramount, I think it was Paramount, Um, yeah, so Tut Tut. Um, Short films, however, uh, dwell in a liminal space between movies and TV, and they simply don't get the same respect and interest. Even anthology shows like Black Mirror, which might be described as a collection of short films, are designed to generate meaning through their juxtaposition. I know a standalone short film is still a rarity on my entertainment menu, and I suspect I'm not alone. In a sense, that may be because nobody really knows what a short film is. According to the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences, the group that gives out uh, the Oscars, including three for short films, animated live action, documentary, a short film runs a maximum of 40 minutes, including credits. That's about the length of a network TV drama episode, once you strip out the commercials, but a short film nominee could be, in theory, the length of an Instagram reel. Which is crazy. Um, a feature-length film, according to the Academy, is anything over 40 minutes. But that has little to do with length attributed to most movies. When was the last time you went to the theatre for a movie that was, say, 61 minutes long? It's vanishingly rare for any feature film to be less than around 82 minutes. I tend to think of a short film as being a uh, being an hourish and under, with its own defined arc and a feature as anything longer. But when you think of it, the distinction is almost meaningless and randomly invented, the product of years of business and technological decisions, and not having any not having to do with any natural time frame. Why not sit down and watch something for 25 minutes? There's something uniquely pleasurable about about watching a tight, elegant short that's exactly the length it needs to be, not inflated to an arbitrary length. Because we know there's a lot of films that do that right now, let's be real. <coughs> Topics that would be uh, brutal um, at full length, palliative care for instance, as in 2019 Oscar-nominated Endgame, um, are not just bearable, but moving at 40 minutes. Jokes and punchlines land perfectly in shorts without requiring a lot of exposition or character development. Those of us raised on Pixar shorts know this well. Short films uh, give filmmakers permission to take risks and play, uh, in part because the audience might tolerate experimentation or frustration better if they know it won't take up their whole afternoon. Shorts generally get the most airtime at film festivals, and some garner significant fanfare. Just this year, the wonderful story of Henry Sugar uh, premiered at the prestigious Venice Film Festival. Pedro Almodovar's 31-minute gay cowboy film, Strange Way of Life, starring Ethan Hawke and Pedro Pascal, um, premiered at Cannes this year, and has been making the festival rounds ever since. 
Yeah, brackets, it's bankrolled in part by Saint Laurent Productions, part of the Yves Saint Laurent fashion empire. How nice. Once within a time, an experimental creation fable from the iconic documentarian Godfrey Reggio, I'm assuming so you say your name, uh, clocks in 52 minutes, which is just right for the material, and its release was accompanied by a retrospective series at the Museum of Modern Art in New York. I considered the recent shorts from Wes Anderson, whose work is easy for me to admire but difficult for me to love. Facts. I feel like I only, I only fuck with like um, Fantastic Mr. Fox, and that's about it. Like everything else, some, you know. Once you once you see the vibe, which by the way is taken from um, his whole style is not his style. By the way, it's um, you know taken from. I think it was um, very like pre Bollywood Indian films. Um, so you know, just just you know, just saying, just throwing out there. He's not original. His <coughs> works, um, his stylistic ticks, not in any sense bad, are difficult for me to track at length. I find myself rewinding and rewinding because I keep getting snagged on details or zone out while narrators talk. My uh, by about the forty-minute mark, my brain has entered stasis. Yes, I always take a couple cracks of watching before I write a review. Outstanding. Uh, luckily, the wonderful story of Henry Sugar, one of a whopping four Anson films that dropped on Netflix last week, clocks in at a cool 39 minutes, and is the longest of them. Anderson has adapted author old Dahl before, obviously Fantastic Mr. Fox, as I just mentioned, and as his custom, he works with a bevy of familiar actors, I bet the Cumberbatch, Ralph Fiennes, Rupert Friend, Ben Kingsley, uh, new to Anderson's stable are Dev Patel and Richard Ayoade. Henry Sugar and three other films, this one, Ratcatcher and Poison, each of which run uh, for 17 minutes, are also recognised to be Andersonian in their aesthetic design and thematic obsessions. Not Andersonian, but whatever. Um, I sat down to watch the longest Henry Sugar with little trepidation, knowing my spotty history with Anderson. But though I did have to rewind a couple of times... Uh, I found myself buzzing with enjoyment. Henry Sugar is the story of a very wealthy cad. What's a cad? Um, who goes through some very uh, unexpected personal growth. And as I watch, I can also feel myself growing. Did I finally feel Wes Anderson's work in my very soul? Maybe. But watching the other three much shorter films, all of which are pretty intense, prove that they're enjoyable and digestible because they simply begin and end pretty quickly. I didn't have to lock in for an hour and a half. I could throw it on, throw it on, and have a whole lovely freestanding cinematic experience with my morning coffee. If anything good can come out of the stream revolution, it could be, or at least, uh, could have been uh, the cultivation of an audience and a market official films. That would go a long way toward expanding the voices, perspectives, stories, styles, and creative visions we encounter. The visions, budding artists raising funds, filmmakers who want to test our concept or technique, and directors from marginalised regions and communities who can't get major studio or investor backing often start making shorts. And I think that's kind of the biggest one, let's be real, you know, like she mentioned all the other shit, but it's kind of, that's the reason, you know, directors from marginalised regions and communities who can't get major studio backing, which is, you know... 99.5% 99.5% of all fucking filmmakers, right? Anyway, continuing on. Uh, with an audience and enough interest, that could be funneled in further work. Not just directing a big-budget movie, but telling more stories that work best at short lengths. Of course, that would require us to go find them, and the companies that distribute them to put more heart into directing audiences towards them. Facts. You probably have easy access to some world-class shorts right now. Netflix, like other streamers, has an entire shorts genre category under movies on its site, which includes many documentaries, prescriptive fiction, and animated shorts too. The internet, quite literally, is awash with short films, whether it's on YouTube or some specialty site. The Anderson shorts weren't particularly easy to find on Netflix in the first few days after release, and it's not totally clear to the casual viewer that they're linked without digging into the interface. Streaming platforms have a long way to go before they figure out how to coax viewers into watching the shorts. But in a world where so much attention is drawn towards very short-form content, recalled TikTok Mean Girls, this can't be rocket science. Maybe the wonderful story of Henry Sugar is a feint in the right direction. Who says how long a movie has to be anyway? But yeah, um... That's the end of the article, and I was trying to—I was trying to just think right of my habits, right? You know, I—I—I I, I kind of—I'm kind of on YouTube a lot, um, more than most. I feel uh, most of the time I'm kind of just watching something um, that is, you know. Sometimes I watch, a, you know, the occasional video essay, and that's like an hour and a bit. So I'm not against watching stuff for you know a long amount of time. It doesn't have to be 
it doesn't have to be a film for me, you know. Um, but yeah, I was trying to just um, I was, I was thinking about it as I was li- as I was you know uh, reading, and <laughs> I think the I think the thing about it is that I feel that short films are a I think un, I think poorly advertised a lot. Um, I think I think that's the main issue. I think the fact that the only times people actually you know voraciously consume consume short films is like I said from an educational perspective. You know, if you're in film studies or any you know film based uh, university course or sixth form course, like you're going to be watching short films uh, because it's easy. It's easy for people. It's easy for teachers to um, and lecturers to put it, um, to, to just give you those, and it's, you know, it's not very taxing, they, you know, like I said, it's, uh, well, like it said, uh, the article said, you know, under 60 minutes most of the time, right, that's how most people see it, but I was also thinking about this in conjunction with music, because I constantly, constantly, if you listen to Digging Digits, and you listen to my weekly, uh, music roundup, um, you know that I have a vendetta against, Artists that don't actually say what their project is in terms of it being an EP or an album. Now, I have my criteria for an album is over 30 minutes and more than 10 tracks. But obviously, sometimes that that's, that's not binary. It's not binary. There's a huge gray area that can happen there. You know, there's plenty of jazz albums, for example, that are five tracks, but they're also 90 minutes. You know, so it doesn't. It's not it's not binary, but it's just my kind of benchmark. But there's so many fucking projects that just skirt by skirt that grey area so so annoyingly to me. And they never say well. They, well, I, I, I have to I, sometimes I have to ask. I'm like, is this an EP or an album? Because sometimes they just say project. Sometimes it's a mixtape, and they actually don't say it's a mixtape. Um, you know, they, they say album when it's actually a mixtape. Sometimes I don't know, but it, and even what the fuck's a mixtape these days? These days, especially, what is a mixtape? Like I knew what was a mi- I knew what a mixtape was back in the day. You know, in the two thousands. Um, but it's got incredibly different definition now. Mixtapes are just basically albums in my mind right now. Um, but what's an EP? You know, I feel like it's something that has to be under half an hour at least. Um, track number isn't really, you know, that bad. But when I add the track numbers and it's, you know, like I said, five tracks, 60 minutes. What do I do with that? Um, or, um, or, li- or like nine tracks and 29 minutes. And then they consider it an album. And I'm just like, mm, is it though? Is it an album though? And they have to consider it an album because they class it as an album. And I go what people class it with their own work as. And that's fine. Um, but I feel like short films and feature films are just really... Even though people have different definitions of it, I feel like it's always clear in what it is. I don't know how to explain it, but when you watch a short film, you know you're watching a short film. Regardless if it's, you know, 60, 61 minutes or 59 minutes. You know, it's it, you know whether it's a short film or not. But for albums and EPs, I don't know. Some uh, people, people don't go by any kind of binary. They just say it's an album, but it's 25 minutes and 8 tracks. And that's an EP in my mind, but they say it's an album, so it confused the hell out of me. But anyway, that's just my diatribe that I was just kind of thinking past this. Um, but yeah, man, I just don't know why I don't watch any short films. You know, I can watch a YouTube video essay with no problem at all. Um, you know, I can watch a documentary series with no problem at all. I was watching uh, the, uh, finally watching the Dear Mama uh, Tupac Afini Shakur documentary. I watched a couple of episodes last night. No problem at all. No problem at all. I'm going to finish it sometime today or tomorrow um, as I record. So, you know, it's no beef. But short films, I don't know, man. It's just something... I feel like there's such a deluge of them. And obviously, like I said, there are a lot. There are, Trust me, there are a fuck ton of short films. A fuck ton of short films. Um, maybe I just have to embrace it in the same way I embrace music these days. And I don't think I have the capacity for that at the moment. Um, in terms of just time and taste. Um, but, you know, I can, I can spin, I can spin like 10 music projects in a week, um, but get me to spin some short films, I'm like, if I have to, you know, <laughs> it's, 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 it's kind of that attitude, and I feel like a lot of people have that as well, um, where, you know, 
uh, it's just people can watch people can and this is the thing i don't even binge watch I'm not even a binge watcher like that, right? Um, even when I said I'm watching Dear Mama, I didn't binge watch it. I watched like a couple of episodes last night. I'm going to watch a couple of episodes today. I don't count that as binge watching. Um, but people can binge watch shit constantly. My mum, in a space of a, like a month or so, um, spin like the entire Big Bang Theory series. Um, and now she's spinning Frasier. Like, like she, she binge watches, right? Um, she binge watches. But you're going to binge watch some short films? Nah, don't think she's going to do that. So, it's a weird one, um, but shout out to short films, man. It is a very valuable medium, and, you know, it does make careers out of a lot of people. Um, it is necessary in, in, what, in what is, admittedly and honestly, a broken um, a broken film system, a broken, um, yeah, broken uh, ecosystem. But, hey, man, short films, if they're, if they're, if they're decent and they're edible... Bully for you. You have a film career. Big up yourself. Because, hey man, I take it from me who has nothing out. <laughs> I have all these scripts, but none of them are made. So, where where am I going? But if you make a short film, you have something to show people. And that's, that's, a, that's a great step forward. God, I just got this terrible, oh God, this terrible notification just now. Amazon unveils to pl- a plan to deliver packages by drone in UK and Italy. I don't know, fam. I don't think that's gonna go very well. <laughs> that's just me. I don't think that's gonna go too well. But good luck with that, Amazon. Good luck with that one. But anyway, let's jump right in next to uh, media. Uh, media segment and actually this kind of links a little bit to um what uh, we were just talking about with short films um, because this one's about streaming and you know i've talked about streaming a few times over the past few years uh, over the past couple of years um in context of the streaming wars which was i the first person to say that in in your universe uh, listener i i i it's the first time I, I, you know, I said it, and then I started seeing it everywhere. I'm just saying, I'm not saying I started it, but I don't know. I feel like I was the first person to say it, but that's just me. Um, but anyway, uh, you know, I've covered the streaming wars um, over time, and you know, I, it's one of those things where it's a, it's it's a good, but it's also a bad, you know, and um, you know, take it from the, take it from the, you know. Uh, now finished writer's strike and still ongoing actor's strike in America um, and, the, and the many other strikes that are pending. Um, streaming is a big part, big reason of why there's a lot of friction right now um, in the in the professional world of uh, film and TV. Um, but yeah, I found this article called How Streaming Ate Itself and I like the sound of that. So let's jump right into that. So that's the title. It's by a new statesman and written by Peter Biskind. So let's jump right in. Hollywood breathed a collective sigh of relief when the writer's strike was settled on the 27th of September. But it was a symptom rather than a cure. This disease was called streaming, and it remains endemic to the financial model imposed by the Netflix revolution that birthed the era of peak TV. Streaming promised entertainment for every taste, every minute, uh, whatever we wanted, whenever we wanted it. Revolutions, however, have a habit of consuming their own. It didn't take long for this one to do the same. There's a reason why the twin writers and actors' walkouts were called the Netflix strikes. Were they? I've never heard that, but okay. Netflix upended the industry business model, which was structured so creatives shared the quote-unquote back-end income generated every time their shows was aired, were aired as they worked their way down from theatrical releases or broadcast TV premieres through long-tail syndication to ancillary, ancillary markets. I, I love saying ancillary, but I never have a reason to say it. Netflix's uh, streaming model had no use for these markets, and consequently, creators received no more than a one-off front-end payment. Actors such as Aaron Paul, co-star of Breaking Bad, complained they received nothing when their shows aired on Netflix. Creatives grumbled that streamers were opaque, making it impossible to know how much their shows are watched and how valuable they are in the marketplace. As the director Steven Soderbergh told me, 
Referring to Elizabeth Holmes's dubious medical company, quote, Netflix may end up being the Theranos of the entertainment industry. It moved us, in economic terms, out of a Newtonian world and into a quantum world where it becomes very difficult di- yeah, very difficult to quantify whether or not it is worth making something, unquote. That's a, that's a fucking good uh, <laughs> analogy right there. I like that. That's kind of clean. By the way, I just listened to myself on here uh, recording, and I don't know. It just doesn't sound as good. <laughs> it, it sounds it sounds more tinny to me. But um, you know, hopefully that doesn't put you off. Anyway, let's jump right. Yeah, continue on. The disappearance of back-end income uh, wasn't the streaming revolution's only casualty. The length of traditional TV seasons was radically downsized from twenty-two odd episodes to ten or fewer. This meant the duration and size of Hollywood writers' rooms were scaled back, further shrinking their paychecks. The issue of the uh, use of AI to write scripts raises ugly head, and creators bemoaned the loss of trust between them and their employers. But as one industry veteran told me, quote, When was there trust? When were the good old when were those good old days when we had kumbaya moments? We negotiated terms, agreement, and then the studios found a way around them. That's what businesses do, unquote. When Netflix was the new kid on the block to enjoy an adolescent growth spurt that roughly lasted from 2010 to 2020, Wall Street prized, huh, see what I did there, Wall sized, um, the company, <laughs> Wall Street prized the company uh, for its exponentially increasing subscriber numbers rather than its profits, if there were any. It was hailed as the future. In 2017, Netflix's founder and CEO Reed Hastings boasted that his only competition was sleep. When studios began releasing features to streaming services and theatres simultaneously, it seemed that the industry was turning its back on exhibition. The streaming stampede weakened Netflix. Hastings awoke one morning to discover that it wasn't sleep. Uh, he had to fear so much as a blizzard of other streamers. Imitators such as Disney+, Plus, Amazon Prime Video, Warner Brothers Discovery. Then Netflix honeymoon came to an abrupt halt in 2022. When it predicted it would add 2 million users, but in fact lost 200,000 in that year's first quarter. Its stock fell 35%, erasing $54 billion off the company's value one day, and then another 35% over the course of the next six months. Its rainbow target of a billion subscribers was downgraded. Moreover, it still had that $14.5 billion debt. Hastings, not known for pessimism, was quoted as saying, It's a bitch. He was right. Netflix wasn't the only company in trouble. The US viewer numbers for ABC, CBS, NBC, and Fox, the linear networks offer quote-unquote appointment viewing, airing shows at fixed times, were shrinking. Uh, while cable companies such as Paramount were facing uh, troubled futures, even if cable was still profitable, indeed, Disney was looking to move ESPN, its prized sports cable channel, to its streaming service, leading to a nasty dispute with its cable partner, Charter Communications. Meanwhile, the UK responded to the streaming revolution with services such as All4, which, you know, actually kind of existed, um, you know, before Netflix anyway, um, or, or, or just around the same time as it. Um, but yeah, it became All4. It was 4OD at one point, and that was when it was great, and now it's crap. Um, BBC iPlayer, Britbox, again, iPlayer lasting a bit long. Britbox, Acorn, Night TVX are very recent. As well as a spate of exceptional series such as Happy Valley, Peaky Blinders, and Fleabag. Back in the US, big tech, Apple, Amazon, and AT&T AT uh, invaded the entertainment space, looming over lesser players. The race to consolidate ushered in the era of mergers and acquisitions. As one source told me, quote, when, there's, when no one's making money, they're trying to figure out how to become profitable. What's often proposed is to get bigger, unquote. Companies such as Warner Brothers Discovery avoided the auction block by taking mountains of debt, which in turn forced cutbacks escalated by the strikes. Others put themselves or partnered themselves up for sale. Rumours continue to circulate that Disney has put ABC, its linear network, on the block, or has even offered up the entire company to Apple. Meanwhile, instead of scaling back, the streamers owned by big tech threw money at new shows because they could. While an influx of investment can be an advantage, it can also be a trap. Music, uh, music. Netflix's first prestige drama came when it acquired House of Cards in 2013, offering David Fincher an unheard of a two-season deal based on a pitch. This was candy to craves, but a bitter pill for the platforms that could afford such largesse. Largesse? Is that a word? Uh, okay. Nudes to me, uh, which is anyway wasteful and can make for bad TV. 
as John Landgraf, who pioneered the new era of basic cable as head of FX with Justified, Goated, and the Americans, explains, quote, If we're going to go from a pitch to series, we're going to make a lot of mediocre stuff. I try not to commit so much capital at any given moment, because whether it turns out good or not so good, it's going on the air because you've committed so much money, and you've got to recoup as much as uh, as much of that investment as however you can, unquote. In other words, the business practices that made Netflix also risked unmaking it. The good news is that in rising interest rates that make borrowing money more expensive and or a future recession may slow the rate of consolidation, discouraging the big fish from swallowing the little fish. When Wall Street changed its mind about streamers and demanded uh, profits as well as growth, uh, it increased the pressure on expensive shows to make a return on investment and streamers became more risk-averse. Platforms that once defined themselves with the adventurous off-network program pioneered by HBO were so hungry for new subscribers that, in the words of former Fox head David Nevins, they, quote, were running for the mainstream, unquote. Over or underspending on TV shows has a dramatic impact on their quality, and when innovation becomes a casualty of caution, many shows build risk aversion into their narratives. The majority of Marvel heroes, for example, never die. That is, die for good. Superheroes are valuable intellectual property, and with multiverses galore, if they die in one universe, they just pop up in another. These heroes can't buy a pint of milk without ending up in another universe. If there's no risk, actions have no consequences. The franchises of today don't so much resemble novels, the template that defined the early peak TV era in which the actions of fully around the characters do have consequences, as they do fairy tales. So we have Amazon's Fatuous Rings of Power, a prequel to Lord of the Rings, rather than HBO's brilliant Game of Thrones. Not even record-breaking blockbusters, Oppenheimer and Barbie trouble thinking inside the industry. Studios and streamers are still playing it safe. Sticking with the tattered franchises they see is the key to a box office bounce back. Lining up behind movies that feature established brands such as Nike and games. Barbie was applauded for its originality, but to Mattel, it's just another franchise. The company has around a dozen shows based on its toys in the pipeline, and I can't wait to watch none of them. Once upon a time, the difference between the disruptors and the disrupted was striking. When HBO was breaking with the sponsor-driven model, he shunned anyone redolent with the stink of network. In the 2000s, the showrunner Tom Fontana uh, was almost booted off what turned out to be a hit series Oz uh, because he had worked on network shows. Now broad appeal programming requires Netflix and other streamers to remake themselves in the network's image, raiding their executives not despite uh, their network values but because of their network values. When Amazon was looking for a new head of Prime Video in 2018, it didn't turn to an indie outfit, but the network, seizing on the former NBC head Jennifer Salke. The result is the mainstreaming of the streaming audience. The once proud HBO is diluted with reality shows and network series such as the Hori, Hori, H-O-A-R-Y, interesting, the Hori uh, West Wing, uh, who would have imagined that the cabler that created The Sopranos We've become the homeless uh, friends. God, that's so depressing. <laughs> Imagine that HBO just going from Sopranos to literally Friends, bruv. Like, they, they were in the same era. That's tragic. Oh, how the mighty fall. Anyway. Netflix uh, has now inverted its business model, introducing an ad-supported tier at a fraction of the cost of its ad-free service, which allows sponsors to influence original programming as much as they did at the network's. An arrangement that was once an anathema, anathema to the streamers, uh, but many of Netflix's more recent hits, well-known shows from The Crown, ugh, to Bridgerton, ugh, could have been produced by traditional networks. Facts. In fact, some of them were produced by a network. There you go. <laughs> the former disruptor uh, collected the old cast and the family-friendly That 70s Show to reboot it as That 90s Show. In 2016, it resurrected the wholesome series Gilmore Girls, still one of its most viewed properties. Kenya Barris, who had left ABC for the freedom of Netflix in 2018, fell for Paramount in 2021 despite his multi-year deal, telling The Hollywood Reporter, quote, I want to do in-your-face shit, but Netflix wants down the middle. He added, Netflix became CBS. The occasional in-your-face show, such as subversive uh, Squid Game, doesn't change the fact that Netflix has become the home of the kind of bland programming that epitomises the undoing of streaming. Ironically, at the same time that the streamers are becoming more conventional, the networks may be getting fractionally less so. 
the former NBC executive Bob Greenblatt told me, quote, every broadcaster is grappling with how to compete with the streaming experience when broadcast television with commercials is the last thing anybody wants to watch, unquote. Abbott Elementary, which began life as a network show, feels fresher than a lot of buzzy streaming comedies. According to New Yorker, David E. Kelly has written for all four Freemats network Cape Wire streamers, while the LA Times uh, dismisses Netflix show Anatomy of a Scandal as paint by numbers. His network show The Violent Big Sky for ABC pushes the limits of network standards. Regardless of the strikes, under the jaundiced 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 eye of jaundiced eye of sponsors, uh, distinctions between streaming and network are crumbling. If current trends continue, Netflix, Apple Plus, Amazon Prime Video, Disney Plus, and perhaps Max will flourish, effectively monopolizing and limiting our viewing choices in the same way that ABC, NBC, CBS, and Fox did in the network era. That is, delivering anodyne programming designed to offend no one while reaching the largest possible audience. As the showrunner Matthew Weiner said, uh, according to an executive I spoke to, quote, It's like Mad Men never happened. All the stuff we did never happened. We're right back to where we were, except there's more of it. And I know this is, um, you know, the whole thing, the whole article itself was very American-focused, um, uh, but, you know, I'm trying to think of how the UK has, you know, uh, adapted to to, to this um, whole landscape. And, you know, obviously, you know, I, I don't, I don't use ITVX or BritBox or any of that. Um, it's not my steez. Um And most of the time, uh, I mean, they're, they're kind of built for non-British audiences because, you know, uh, as a Sky kid, I can pretty much get anything anywhere, uh, uh, pretty much. So um, it's not really much of a bother. I could literally just search it up. But I was there. You know, um, they have Netflix integrated within the Skybox, but you can get other stuff. You know, like I said, my mum's watching Fraser. Uh, Fraser, that's by you know, that's via Paramount Plus right now. Um, so you know, I, you can you can I think you can watch Apple shit on there. You can watch Disney shit definitely on there, um, and probably more uh, more obscure ones there as well. So you know, it's no it's no beef um, for me, but I can imagine people kind of not caring to be honest um you know i feel like most people like he mentioned my mother i feel like most people are like my mum where they have all these options a bevy of options like she has sky she has netflix she has paramount plus now um if i you know <laughs> i have uh, disney plus and uh netflix as well uh, my sister has amazon prime I mean, I'm jacking all these, by the way. So Netflix is by my sister, Disney Plus is via a homie. Um, so yeah, I'm not paying for any of it, <laughs> but you know, is what it is. I'm 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 a I'm a leech, but you know, all these options, I I struggle to dis- I struggle to um, actually, you know, uh, pick something and stick with it, um, or even actually just um, I don't know, just try and see in there and just actually decide what to watch in terms of. I could watch a lot of things, and there's a lot of things I want to watch, but I don't know which one to watch first. And I feel like that's the complete opposite of what my mum thinks is when she's trying to watch something. And she's watched a lot of just random crap. There was a time when she's just um, watching these random ass, like really oddly toned Korean shows, and I was just like, "Why the fuck are you watching this? Um, it's jarring." But yeah, she's and she's like, "Oh, there's nothing to watch." I hate that term. I hate when people say there's nothing to watch. There's always something to watch, but yeah, I don't think I don't think streamers actually put in the effort to um, diversify. They just you know they they focus on what you what you're going to be shown on the homepage. They focus on you know the algorithm, but they don't focus on you know just taste making. They just take they just you know try and. They just they're just shooting machine guns, you know. What I mean, they're not sniping; they're shooting machine guns. They're spraying you with shit, and hopefully, one actually hits you. And that's kind of it. And it's kind of shit, to be honest. It's really crap to have no just filter, because there is a lot of shit out there, and um, I can imagine people just getting turned off by that. And also the fact that even if they do have a favorite show, the f- the fact that they bounce everywhere from place to place is really irritating to me. So. Um, yeah, man, like I said, there's a lot of good things about streaming, quote-unquote, but there's a lot of shit where I'm just like, oh, please take me back. Please just take me back <laughs> to the halcyon days of pre-2010.
let's hop into the next topic and this one is something that I've been waiting for for a while I can finally feel vindicated there are more than one Banksy allegedly and I'm just so happy it's, it's a theory quote quote I've been ho- it's a theory that I've been holding on to for years I'm just like Banksy can't be one person it might have started with one person but it can't be one person now not anymore no fucking way um, and here's and here's a great article for it. Um, this is by Tyler Mittman, um, who is senior lecturer uh, in sociology and criminology at uh, York St John University, uh, obviously via conversation. And it's called "Unmasking Banksy: The Street Artist Is Not One Man, But a Whole Brand of People." Damn fucking right it is. Let's jump right in. The graffiti artist known as uh, known as Banksy might be unmasked in an upcoming defamation case over his use of Instagram to invite shoplifters to go to a guest guest store uh, because it had used his imagery without permission. The case uh, could be seen as an attempt to force Banksy to relinquish his anonymity, which many say has been important to his success over the years. There has been much speculation as to the identity of the artist, who is believed by a Many to be Bristol's Robert, Robin Cunning, uh, Gunningham, sorry, Gunningham, that's actually the first time I've seen that, instead of a C, is a G, who was named as a co-defendant in the defamation suit. While it's not being confirmed that Banksy is Gunningham, pointing, out, uh, pointing this out is in no way a revelation. Moreover, trying to find out Banksy's identity ultimately does not matter. There have been many investigations into the artist's identity, and it's been a topic of serious journalistic and academic investigation for years, but no one has been able to absolutely link Gunningham and Banksy. Short of Gunningham's omission, complete certainty is unlikely. But if Banksy's identity is revealed, police forces around the world could bring vandalism, property destruction, criminal mischief, or worse charges against the individual. Gunningham revealing himself would also destroy the Banksy mystique. He is not likely to snitch on himself or damage the brand, the more important reason Gunningham being Banksy doesn't matter is because there is no Banksy, no individual who is Banksy anyway. At one time, there was uh, one Banksy who had a graffiti career and a famous beef in the subculture with London graffiti legend Robbo. That time is gone. Banksy is now a collective of artists who work together to produce thoughtful, provocative and subversive pieces and installations. The scope and secrecy of Banksy's larger works require the cooperation of many individuals to orchestrate, direct and produce them. The Bemusement Park uh, Dismal Land, a sinister take on Disneyland-style theme parks. The Walled Off Hotel, Banksy's Hotel and commentary on Israel-Palestine conflict and in Palestine. And better out than in, Banksy's New York Wide Art Residence uh, are examples of this. Investigators believe that collective uh, that the collective includes uh, many well-known established artists. Bristol Street artist John Doe, um, spelled like The Simpsons Doe. D-O-H, um, is among those rumoured to be involved, as is graffiti and street artist James um, AME72, AIM72, I don't know, AIM72, AIM, um, and perhaps even Massive Attack singer Robert Del Nacha, among others, imagine that. Uh, this is speculation, and again, this doesn't matter. What matters is why Banksy has been in the course recently. More important than the current defamation suit is the 2021 rejection of Banksy trademark by the EU. Uh, this was the result of Banksy's battle with street art greeting card producer Full Color Black, um, who used Banksy's image of a monkey wearing a placard without permission. Rawling uses Banksy's own words in decision stating, The Rawling notes that street artists explicitly stated that the public is morally and legally free to reproduce, amend and otherwise use any copyright works forced upon them by third parties. Also, copyright is for losers, as Banksy said in his own 2017 book, Wall and Peace. The application to declare the trademark invalid was filed in 2018. Banksy took great umbrage of this. In October 2019, he officially revealed the Homewares brand, gross domestic product. The store is officially the website, but it debuted as a pop-up shop, which couldn't be entered. A statement pop, uh, posted on the pop-up storefront, quote-unquote, declared that the gross domestic product was opened in direct response to the trademark cancellation filing and that selling Banksy-branded merchandise was the best way to ensure ownership and control of the Banksy name. What's important here is the clear interest in wanting to maintain control over what is and is not a Banksy and what Banksy artwork is associated with in commercial spaces. Banksy fakes are everywhere. The artist's popularity and the th- fact that the bulk of Banksy's work is stencils 
which are easy to reproduce and by anyone uh, with some talent, time and exacto knife, ensure fakes and copies will continue to be made. To combat this, Banksy has a cohort of trusted art dealers for official Banksy's and an authentication service called Pest Control that chases and legitimates uh, the, proven- the provenance of Banksy's. While it is entirely legitimate for any artist to want to maintain their unique identity and control of their artwork, it's rare for an artist to maintain an entire staff department dedicated to it. Not the graffiti writers don't defend their copyrights. Revoke, uh, or Revoke, I don't know, Futura and Ryan, to name a few, have defended their ownership of their graffiti and are in court. They hired lawyers, but they didn't have a division dedicated to preempting and preventing infringement. Pest control is seemingly in place to maintain the authentic and unique perspective of Banksy's works and to confirm they were officially produced by Banksy. This is a process often referred to as brand maintenance. So what's the point of all this? Well, Banksy was an individual street artist at one point. This was probably Robin Gunningham. However, Banksy is now a collective of artists who work under the Banksy brand to produce the works that the Banksy authentication service, Pest Control, officially decrees as Banksy's. Banksy is also a team of lawyers, art dealers, and curators who ensure that the only works officially associated with the Banksy brand get the certified Banksy seal of approval. None of this is secret, but it's not been publicised because being a litigious art collective equally as dedicated to producing art as engaging in brand maintenance doesn't evoke the solo, clandestine, provocative, raconteur image Banksy is going for. Having a team of lawyers making sure only real Banksy's are labelled as such doesn't do much for your street cred. Still, revealing this publicly likely won't diminish interest in Banksy or affect the price people are willing to pay for monkey stencils or self-destroying art. And, you know, I feel... I, I feel that, you know, while I have been vindicated, in, in, you know, in this sense, and, you know, it makes sense for Banksy to just be one big collective of people. Um, I, w- I didn't really account for, you know, art dealers and lawyers being part of the equation. But, yeah, it makes sense, right, um, of them being part of the equation. But, ah, it's just, uh, yeah, I don't know if the I don't know if people actually care about the mystique like that, honestly. Um, I, I don't, I, I mean, to this, to, to just to say, I don't get why people pay, um, um, you know, but I, I, I love the, the there's, a, there's kind of like a, there's there's a weird thing about Banksy where like um, you know I, I was I was I saw the news piece about or the news anyway about the news items about the shredded, um, about the shredded uh, uh, artwork right so someone bought it it got shredded immediately and then it's more expensive. I find that so weird you know that a street artist or graffiti artist however you want to you know label it now um, I just say street artist right and. Uh, and demonstrator in a lot of ways, right? I find that a bit odd, um, in that, you know, the art is so coveted, and I, I think that's more of an indictment of the art world, and not Banksy, but, um, yeah, I do find that a bit weird, but yeah, man, I knew there was, I knew there was a fucking ton of them, man, I knew it was just a squad, it had to be a squad, you can't do all this shit and not have a squad, you know what I mean? So, um, yeah, it is a weird one, and I don't think this has, this will have anything, yeah, I don't think it will change much. Um, people, you know, it might drop at one point, and it will just be like, oh, is it? Oh, so oh, it's that dude. Oh, well, great. But then he might just, you know, get sued by or you know put under you know criminal cases by <laughs> you know a ton of fucking countries. Um, but you know, hopefully that doesn't happen. Um, but yeah, man. Uh, as long as it don't get to that point, I don't think people will really care if people know who it is actually so I don't know it's a weird one I can't wait to get this episode over with and actually figure out why um, I can't get my software up because I do not like the sound of my voice right now. But anyway, let's finish up, um, as I said, with the Israel-Palestine war, um, or genocide, as it is should be called in some ways. Um, but yeah, this is an article from uh, Jonathan Cook, um, who, is, um, all, who has updated his... Um, uh, who's done another piece um, about Western media 
um, via Middle East Eye. This is an opinion piece um, by him, um, so, you know, with that in mind, and he's actually written three books about the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, quote-unquote conflict. Um, but yeah, I found this one, and I like this one, so I'm going for it, and I feel like it's an important one to talk about, um, especially considering that Joe Biden is, you know, currently in Israel chatting shit. Um, so yeah, this is called um, The Blood of Gaza is on the West's Hands as much as Israel's, and I think that's... A key issue, a key point, um, and uh, you know every country that is going like, oh, Israel has the right to defend itself. Um, it's actually a thing I dropped on IG recently. I'm gonna read it right quick. It's, it's from a, uh, it's from it's a newspaper clipping, um, like a, you know letters. You know how um, newspapers do those, and um, it's by Adam Johannes, uh, secretary of Car- uh, in Cardiff, uh, Stop the War Coalition. <laughs> Excuse me, and it's called Israel's Style of Public Relations. So he goes a quick public a quick guide to ER, uh, Israel's uh, PR methods. One, we have reports of deaths. We'll check into it. Two, the people were killed, but by forty Palestinian rocket slash bomb. Three, okay, we killed them, but they were terrorists. Four, okay, there were civilians, but they were being used as human shields. Five, okay, there were no fighters in the area, so it was our mistake. But we killed civilians by accident. They do it on purpose. Six. Okay, we kill far more civilians than they do, but look how terrible other countries are. Seven, lastly, why are you still talking about Israel? Are you some kind of anti-Semite? Which is really succinct, and um, I feel like is just all I see on the news now, and it's just really jarring to see the media, especially in the UK, just really bend over backwards to try and uh, make this not about a genocide, which is clearly happening. But anyway, let's get to this Jonathan Cook piece. Israel is on the rampage again, and Gaza's population is facing a quiet, slow path to erasure. The ones funding and enabling it are the US and European allies. The bloodiest hand in the current slaughter of Palestinians and Israelis belongs not to Hamas or the Netanyahu government, but to the West. Yes, Palestinian fighters carried out a brutal attack at the weekend on Israeli settlements on the edge of the Gaza Strip. This attack did not emerge from nowhere or without warning. It was not unprovoked, as Israel would like us to believe. In fact, Western capitals know exactly how much the Palestinians of Gaza have been provoked because those same governments have been complicit for decades in supporting Israel as it has ethnically cleansed Palestinians from their homeland and imprisoned the remnants of the population in ghettos across their homeland. You see, um, I just want to stop here quickly because I find it so f- interesting that, you know, um, that all these countries are currently, you know, like I said, bending over backwards to support Israel. We're also the same countries that, you know, were talking about China and, you know, the, the, the Uyghurs and that and that whole thing that happened, right? And probably is still happening, but people just don't cover it anymore. Um, you know, it's just weird. It's weird to, you know, just feel like it's, you know, very similar in some ways, um, in a lot of ways, but whatever. Semantics, I guess. In fact, Western capitals, and I've been that bit, uh, to decades, uh, for the past 16 years, Western backing... For Israel has not wavered, even as Israel has turned the coastal enclave of Gaza from the world's largest open-air prison into a gruesome torture chamber where Palestinians are experimented on. Their food and power has been ration- have been rationed, essentials of life denied to them, their access to drinkable water slowly removed, and their hospitals prevented from receiving medical supplies and equipment. The problem with is not ignorance. Uh, Western governments have been informed in real time of the crimes Israel is committing, in confidential cables from their own embassy officials and in any supports from human rights groups documenting Israel's apartheid rule over Palestinians. And yet Western politicians have yet time and again done nothing to intervene, done nothing to exert meaningful pressure. Worse, they have rewarded Israel with endless military, financial and diplomatic support. The West is no less responsible now as Israel steps up its barbaric treatment of Gaza. Defence Minister Yoav Gallant Uh, decided this week to deepen the siege on Gaza by stopping all food and power, a crime against humanity. He has referred to the enclave's caged Palestinian population, men, women and children, as quote-unquote human animals. Dehumanisation, as history has proved time and again, is the prelude to ever greater outrages and horrors. How has the West responded? President Joe Biden has declared approvingly that a long war is ahead between Israel and Hamas. Uh, Washington seems to relish long wars, which always proves a boon to its arms industries and a distraction from domestic troubles. The U.S. aircraft aircraft carriers on the way, 
Officials are already preparing to send missiles and bombs. It will be uh, once again uh, used once again to kill Palestinian uh, uh, civilians from the air, as well as ammunition for I- Israel's troops to strafe uh, Palestinian communities during the coming ground invasion. And of course, there will be plenty of extra funding for Israel, money that can never be found when it's needed by the most vulnerable U.S. citizens. Those funds will be on top of nearly $4 billion Washington currently sends each year to an Israeli government of self-declared fascists and ethnic supremacists, who express uh, aim is to annex the last remaining fragments of Palestinian territory as soon as they, can, as soon as they get the green light from Washington. Britain's Prime Minister Rishi Sunak does not want to be outdone as Israel's conflicts uh, collected as Israel inflicts collective punishment on Gaza's Palestinians and begins to slaughter them every bit as indiscriminately as Hamas did Israeli pie goes at the weekend. A giant illuminated Israeli flag was emblazoned on the facade of the uh, best known home in Britain, number ten Downing Street, Sunak's official residence. The Prime Minister has offered military assistance and intelligence, presumably to help Israel bomb Gaza's cage population. Just a note, right? The the size of Gaza is like, it's like the if you go top to bottom of like um of a uh, of a uh, north to south London, and then squeeze it, squeeze it um so like the height, and then squeeze the width, right? To maybe like the size of central London. That's Gaza. That's Gaza, right? That's you, they don't even if. Even if, right, even if, um, you know, just side note, even if every Western country, especially the US, of course, right, even if they took away all the funding um, from Israel, they probably still could just wipe, wipe Palestinian, uh, Palestine, just wipe it away. Um, and that's without the money, I believe. I don't know for a fact, right? I don't know Israel's finances like that. But fuck. On top of all this? Heinous. It's, it's just disgusting. Anyway. The truth is. That this moment of ca- uh, catastrophe. Could uh, never have been reached. Without Western powers indulging. Subsidising and providing diplomatic cover. For Israel's brutality. Towards the Palestinian people. Decade after decade. Without without such unstinging uh, support. Stinting? Unstinting sorry. Support. Uh, and without a complicit Western media, or, or especially Western media, fucking hell, they are doing their best. They're doing their best to just like keep people blind. I swear, uh, refashioning uh, the land thefts by settlers and the oppression of, by soldiers as some kind of humanitarian crisis, Israel could never have gotten away with its crimes. It would have never been forced. It would have been forced to reach a proper accommodation with the Palestinians, not the bogus Oslo Accords that were intended only to ensnare the good Palestinian leadership into colluding their own uh, in their own people's subjugation. Israel would have also would also have been forced uh, genuinely uh, to genuinely normalize with its Arab neighbors, not browbeat them into accepting a Pax Americana in the Middle East. Instead, the Israel has been free to pursue a policy of relentless escalation, sold by the Western media as calm or quiet, until Palestinians try to hit back at their tormentors. Only then is the term escalation used. It's always Palestinians escalating tensions. The permanent state of oppression inflicted by Israel can then be safely acknowledged and relabeled as retaliation. Palestinians are expected to suffer in silence. Because when they make a noise, it risks reminding Western publics of how bogus, how self-serving Western leaders' appeals to the quote-unquote rules-based order truly are. Where does this endless indulgence from the West ultimately lead? Already, Israel is emboldened to make much more explicit excuse me, its policy towards Gaza's 2 million inhabitants. There is a word for that policy, one we are not supposed to use of, uh, to avoid causing offence to those implementing it, as well as those who quietly support its implementation. Whether by design or outcome, Israel's starving of civilians, even though with no power, depriving them of clean water, and preventing hospitals from treating the sick and wounded, from treating those Israel has bombed, is a genocidal policy. Western governments know this too, because Israeli leaders have made no secret of what they are doing. Fifteen years ago, shortly after Israel instituted its stifling siege on Gaza by land, sea and air, the then Deputy Defence Minister Matan Vil- Vilnai averred that Israel was ready to carry out a Shoah, uh, the Hebrew word for Holocaust, on Gaza. 
Um, if the Palestinians were to avoid this fate, he said, they must keep quiet at their internment. Six years later, Eilet Shaked bottled that, who would soon become, uh, who would soon be appointed a senior Israeli minister, declared all Palestinians in Gaza to be, quote-unquote, the enemy. And included, quote, its elderly and its women, its cities and its villages, its property and its infrastructure, unquote. She called on Israel to kill the mothers of Palestinian fighters resisting the occupation so they could not give birth to more little snakes. Quote-unquote, little snakes. Palestinian children. Fucking hell. Ayah. Um, during the 2019 general election, Benny Gantz, the leader of the opposition, soon to be defence minister, campaigned with a video celebrating his time as head of the Israeli military when, quote, parts of Gaza were sent back to the Stone Age, unquote. In 2016... Another general, Yair Golan, who at the time was the Israeli military's second in command, described developments in Israel as echoing the period in Germany leading up to the Holocaust. When asked to comment on Golan's uh, remark during an interview this year, retired General Amaram uh, Levin agreed that Israel was becoming more like Nazi Germany. Quote, it hurts, it's not nice, but that's the reality, unquote. Western leaders watched through all of this. As Palestinian civilians, half the enclave's population of children, were kept hungry, were denied drinkable water, were refused electricity, were denied proper medical care, and were repeatedly subjected to horrifying bombardments. From one side of, it, one side of its mouth, the West pretend, uh, pretended to agonise about legal niceties of proportionality. From the other side of its mouth, it cheered Israel on. It spoke of unbreakable bonds, of unquestionable rights, of quote-unquote self-defence. It echoed figures like Gallant, the Palestinians weren't humans with agency, they weren't people striving for freedom uh, with their, uh, for their freedom and dignity. They weren't a people resisting their occupation or, and dispossession as they were fully entitled to do under international law, a right the world celebrates when it comes to Ukrainians. No, they were either victims or the supporters of terrorist leaders. As such, they were treated by the West as though they had forfeited any right to be heard, to be valued, to be treated as human. Western politicians and media expect the Palestinians of Gaza to stay in their torture chamber, bite their lips and suffer in silence, so con- uh, consciences yeah, consciences in the West are not disturbed. It ha- no, that's to, that's, to, that's to suggest that they do have a conscience, of course, you know. Uh, the West uh, individual government, governments. Uh, it has to be said, Gaza's population is facing a quiet, slow path through Eurasia, and the ones funding it, the ones enabling it, are the US and its European allies. Their hands are the ones drenched in the blood of Gaza. And apart from, you know, that one, um, uh, I think it was like Spanish social care minister or something, I forget, I forget, I forget her position and her name, shout out to her, She's the only person I have seen, um, or the only person I've seen, you know, obviously in terms of being shared, um, being shared a lot. Um, the only one that has really called upon, you know, her government and just in general to, to be on the right side of history. David Lammy, Keir Starmer, Labour, Tories, America, all of this, France, Japan... Germany, uh, all of these countries, Spain in some ways, uh, I'm assuming, because since, uh, you know, she obviously, um, homegirl did uh, say that on her individual channel, um, not except, not as, you know, part of the Spanish government or anything, it was an individual um, saying, I'm, I'm, I bet that most people are going, please don't do this, um, fuck, apart from her, I have no, nobody, nobody, Oh yeah, I'll put apart from Tory MP Crispin Blunt, I think he's an MP still, Crispin Blunt apparently, of all people, um, it's saying that, you know, these are war crimes and Israel should be tried for war crimes, which is this which is what all of these are. This is war crimes, this is genocide, this is open air prison, this is all of the superlatives that you can give that you have heard. This is facts. Okay? And even with the um, recent uh, hospital that got bombed, uh, U.S. already trying to mask it and uh, say it, was, oh, it wasn't really Israel. We haven't we haven't seen reports that it was Israel. Okay, who the fuck was it? Like, it's just, just it's just jarring. It's just jarring. It's tiring. Really, is tiring. Um, but you know, I'm glad I raised the issue on here at least. You know, I'm reaffirming my stance towards this personally. 
Um, if you didn't know before, if you didn't spin the free Palestine episode from a few years ago, that's fine. You have, you now have this. This is what it is. This is where I'm at. Palestine is going to be, um, hope, hopefully not, but you know, at this point, it's looking pretty fucking grim. Um, oh, you know, they're just getting, they're getting, they're getting bombarded, but every hour, um, I think it's like five Palestinians die every hour, something like that. Um, it's tragic. All the stats are tragic, all the stories are tragic, all the pictures are tragic. I saw, fuck, I saw, I saw a beheaded kid, man. Like, I saw one, I saw a beheaded kid, a beheaded Palestinian kid, and, um, yeah, it's just, um, it's just, it's, it's not, it's not for the faint of heart, um, but, you know, I'm, I'm hopeful that, you know, it can get, um, it can be, uh, Rectified. Um, I don't personally know what the solution is. I don't know if it's two-state solution, one-state solution, or whatever. I don't. I don't. I don't know the solution. I don't have those answers, unfortunately. Um, but what I do want and what I do know is that <laughs> these people are being genocided, and I feel every every government that is funding. Uh, funding this or or contributing to this in any way? I mean, not that the UK um this ain't this ain't new for the UK um in, especially in the fucking Middle East. I mean, they started this shit technically. They started this Israeli Zionism. Um, uh, they they bolstered that shit back in the day. Um, so you know, it's, it's <laughs> the UK is not uh, obviously uh, uh, unaware of any of this. But yeah, this whole thing's criminal. And um, I'm seeing a lot of people in even worse lights than I did before. And I didn't know I could see them in more worse light. But fucking hell, they just fi- they found another way. They found another way to be actively supporting a fucking genocide of, uh, of what is now. And the numbers are dwindling of 2 million people. Um, it's, 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 it's horrible. It's disgusting. But that's all the superlatives I could possibly give. But um, yeah, I'll leave it at that. Ladies and gentlemen, following the 5VPN, I've been Charlie Taylor. This has been what's good in a terrible voice, um, but it is what it is. Uh, intro music was too much by Vanilla. Thanks to Chill Music for Bid to Use. Thanks to Friend of 5V Nappy High, Bid to Use, Charismatic for the Interlude. You can find both the links, all the links in the full show notes. And with that said, I hope you all have a good week. Please, you know, um, stay informed, be aware of misinformation, disinformation. Um, and, you know, just check everything. Check everything. Check all the information that you're given. Um, not just for this, not for just for Israel, Palestine, but for everything. Um, you know, it's a lot of bullshit that can go around. Um, but, yeah, just stay vigilant. Stay aware. And take a break if you need to. Like, there's a... Once I saw the once I saw the kids, um, I just had to... I just had to get off. Um, so, you know, just be, be kind to yourself on that front. Um, but, yeah. Anyway, hope you all have a good week. Should always try and do the same. Until next time, take it easy. Ladies and gentlemen.